Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Thanks as always to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the podcast, get extended editions of episodes. Uh, the Uncanny Hour podcast is exclusive to Patreon supporters. Uh, the new episode coming out this week on Saturdays, a look at the band Hawkwind, the space rock group Hawkwind, and uh, one of the most influential groups of the counterculture in the 1970s. And on that episode, hosted by Robin, of course, we chat to Stuart Lee and Alan Moore and Stephen Morris of New Order and Joy Division, uh, Stacia Blake from Hawkwind, Joe Kendall from Prog Rock Magazine, Joe Banks, who's just written a book about Hawkwind, and also the musician Jane Weaver. That's all exclusive for Patreon supporters. Reminder, December 12 is our... 24-hour edition of Nine Lessons and Compendium combined. Free to watch online. Some socially distanced tickets available to come and watch the broadcast from King's Place. Um, if we're allowed, we don't, we, you know, we don't know what the situation is going to be in a few weeks' time. But obviously, if we aren't allowed uh, audience in, all the tickets are fully refundable. So you can go and get those on the King's Place website. Or you can go to crowdfunder.co.uk slash nine lessons and get yourself a virtual ticket and you get some rewards for that as well. There's stickers and badges and posters and all sorts of stuff available exclusively for those who donate to the crowdfunder. All the profits will be going to charity as always. And all of the guests on today's episode of Book Shambles are also going to be part of that 24-hour show. This episode uh, we recorded a couple of months ago actually as part of the Royal Albert Home series of online events and we realised that we'd not actually put it out as a podcast, even though it was a Book Shambles live event. So if you missed that event live uh, on the Albert Hall website or uh, on the Cosmic Shambles YouTube channel, fret not, here it is as a podcast. This episode features initially Robin and Helen Chersky hosting, joined by the astronaut Samantha Cristoforetti to talk about her new book, Diary of an Apprentice Astronaut. And then we were joined by Tanita Tickerham, who played a couple of songs for us. We've included those on the podcast as well. And then she stayed around for a chat and joined by Josie as well for the second half of the show, which is Robin and Helen and Josie and Tanita and Samantha. So we hope you enjoy this special episode. Also a reminder, uh, you can donate to the Royal Albert Hall. They are a charity who is struggling at the moment as well. So you can go to their website and donate to them as well if you'd like to. Now, here is this week's episode. To begin with, here is Robin and Helen and Samantha. Hello. Welcome to what is sometimes known as Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, currently without Josie Long, though Josie may well be uh, joining us shortly. Uh, this is uh, another of our astronaut specials, something we've done at the Albert Hall before. As obviously you can realise, we're not at the Albert Hall. I'm sure everyone is quite au fait with there's been a worldwide situation and certain forms of entertainment have changed due to that. Um, and this is one of the Royal Albert Home series, uh, at home series. And uh, this is, uh, I think, the penultimate one. Uh, there's some other ones you can see. We did a big show a while ago uh, called Sea Shambles which is a great big celebration of the oceans, not many celebration but also looking and trying to understand the problems that we are facing, human caused problems uh, and also delighting in some of the creatures that are in there and also about the uh, that area of the oceans which we uh, know nothing about which is much larger than we might imagine. The statistic which is often mentioned and which Helen Chersky particularly hates uh, and I'm going to be introducing her in a moment is that we know more about the moon than we know uh, about the oceans but that has very 
various different footnotes to it. If you're very lucky, Helen will give you those footnotes later on in the show. Uh, I'll just do a little bit of housekeeping before we start, which is uh, there are links to donate to uh, the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, as you know, of course, uh, as I mentioned already, there's a lot of venues out there, which even, even the bigger venues, if this is a very, very tough time because, of course, they're not able to open up at the moment. They're not able to get people through the doors. A lot of the huge events that we're going to go on are going on in this way. If you can donate, that's fantastic. And also what we do, we have a, a, a Patreon uh, account if you can support our Cosmic Shambles or Book Shambles uh, by going on to Patreon. We have generally we, we make about three or four things a, a week and we try to make them with uh, all the best authors and uh, and scientists and comedians and there's loads of stuff out there so uh, i hope you get a chance to uh, to take a look at what we're up to um and uh, i think that's all i really need to tell you now uh, i'm going to introduce you to uh, helen chersky who as i said helen you, i know you don't like that it, i i understand why you don't like it but it kind of it does still have re- i just think that process is more important than drawing a line on a map so I basically yeah. think that, under, you know, processes are important. That's the fun bit. We're still exploring all the processes. You see it as negative. I see it as positive. What it's saying is we've positive. done. The, what it's saying is we've done the moon. Get your scuba gear on. That's what it's saying. <sighs> let's not have this now. We're supposed to be talking about. Yeah, to be let's talk about. Let's let's. We are going to be talking about space exploration today. <laughs> said, and this is uh, someone who uh, has spent 199 consecutive days in space and has just uh, written a fantastic book, which I, I I read in the last three days. And it really is. If you have any interest in space exploration whatsoever, if you want to understand the process of those people who, you know, all of that that kind of that that moment of the first time you go up. And then you have to go stage by stage by stage, waiting eventually for that hopeful email, which she got, which said, yes, you will be going to Star City and you will be going into space. Uh, the book is called uh, Diary of an Apprentice Astronaut. And we are joined, well, today, are joined today by, by Samantha, Samantha Cristoforetti. Hello, Samantha. How are you? Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> now, I'm going to get straight in there to, uh, with, I hope, you know, a, a, a question which is inspired by the last astronaut that we did an event with at the Albert Hall, who uh, is Rusty Schweikart from uh, uh, Apollo 9, and uh, a, a very interesting and very thoughtful uh, person in terms of ideas of exploration in space. And I know that you're currently working on projects which are looking, again, about getting further back further out in space. And what Rusty felt of about five years after he did uh, uh, Apollo 9, he then did a speech where he suddenly realized what it was all about. And he felt that this is moment, this journey into space is the moment where we leave Mother Earth, where it is almost like the moment where the placenta can no longer feed us, the moment where we have become too big for our planet, we are too big, and, and like a, a child, we have to forge out into space. And I wonder how you feel about that, that idea of space exploration, that it's time to leave, that we've grown up, grown up. I think I tend to agree. Um... Uh, you know, that's why one can, you know, argue, make the argument for space exploration. You know, there's a lot of utilitarian reasons, you know, there's reasons grounded in science and technology and economics, even in geopolitics. Um, but, and, and all those are valid. I, I'm not saying that they're not, but personally, and probably like most astronauts, right, you know, for the, the way we became fascinated by space and we trained to fly to space and we eventually got to space. I think that, you know, in the end, we subscribe to that more idealistic view where, 
you can't go to space for the sake of going to space, um, you know, for, for the that purpose of, yeah, as you're saying, of, of growing up as a species, of expanding the, the, the space where we can actually live and work and thrive and exploit resources. And we've done that with the space station, right? You know, for, for all of human history before that, we've, we had been confined to the surface of the earth, of course, the seas, the oceans in part. Um, and, and then for the last, and then we had the short stints, you know, to, through Apollo and then the space shuttle programs in low Earth orbit. Um, but then for the last 20 years, actually this year, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of the very first expedition on ISS. And since that day, there has always been a human being on ISS. So you can say, you know, it, it, it's the beginning of becoming a true spacefaring civilization where, you know, we have expanded those 400 kilometers out there. We can, we know that we can work and thrive there. And in fact, as, as we were just discussing backstage, there's a lot of even private initiatives now looking at creating private space stations. So it's become more like, you know, this, this space where we can actually thrive as human beings. And then of course, the next step is to repeat that going further back to the moon this time to stay in a sustainable way. So, yeah, I just subscribe to that idea. <laughs> There's a really interesting sort of add-on to that, though, which I think is in your book. So your, it's, your book is full of these amazing descriptions of all these tiny details of things you have to remember and get right. And there's a point where I think you're talking about um, a spacesuit and you say that it feels like the human is merging with the machine. And as you're talking about, you know, humans will never be in space without a machine. And so I wondered if there's this idea of, you know, it's not just about going out into space. It's actually learning to become one with the machines, that all these learning, all these details is kind of learning how to, you know, like you said, merge with the machine to become something else as well. Is the, is the part of it which is, it feels like you're enhancing humanity because you are merging with the machines, even though humans built them. Right, and it, it's very much a technology. I'm, I'm very comfortable with the with the technology in, in the space world because I always have the feeling that it's really technology, as you're saying, at the surf at, at the service of the human being. You know, that's the goal is to enhance what we can do as, as human beings. I'm much less comfortable with uh, technology when we're talking talking about social media because I'm, for example, not quite sure if you know who, who's in charge there. What what purpose? <laughs> Oh, are we enhancing humanity or are we doing the opposite? But when, like in, in space, right, technology is there to enhance our, our possibilities and allow us to, to live and thrive in a place where, you know, definitely human beings were not meant to be, right, originally. Uh, yeah, that's, I'm definitely very comfortable with technology in that case. And it sounds like you've had a lot of fun. I mean, you know, you're trained as an engineer and what comes to your, you're having fun. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I, I like, you know, I, I like to, to, to recognize in things, you know, human genius and figure out how they work and how to make them work best. And, um, and of course, also how to adapt myself, right? And, you know, of course, you also have a little bit to adapt to technology. You were mentioning the spacesuit and much of the training is really about learning how to move in the spacesuit and and accept the limitations of the spacesuit and not fight against it but work with it you know and it, it's it's really all about uh, all about that can i ask you about that there's some astronauts you you find out they 
you you find out they were very young. They were they they you know for some of them for a different generation. Uh, you know, for Chris Hadfield, he sees the first moon landing in 1969, and some people then say that was it. That's all they wanted to be. Now, in your book, it seems you wanted uh, adventures. You want to explore. Uh, you know, uh, you, you're you're in the air force and you're doing very well there. But it didn't seem like that. What point did you think? You know what? I really do want to go into space. This is the adventure that I want to have. Really, but I can I cannot pinpoint like this aha moment that you were mentioning that a lot of astronauts of the somewhat older generation had <clears throat> with the moon landings. Um, for me, it was some kind of sedimenting. I think of of a number of impressions, and and of course, you know, I'm 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 reverse engineering my childhood, so probably I'm getting a lot of things wrong. But you know, what what, what I would say is that a lot of influence came from books that I read, you know, from Jules Verne to adventure books, as you were saying, um, from the fact of growing up in a small village in the mountains and having this very strong presence of, of the starry sky at night is something that I pondered about a lot, <laughs> you know, with, with a mix of fascination and, and, and fear and, and a sense of awe. Um, Star Trek was a big influence, I, I certainly cannot deny that. Um, you know, teachers in school, also very early in elementary school, teaching about planets. Also, you know, grown-up books that I kind of stole in the house about astronomy and, and, and things like that. So that's kind of how all it's, it all started. And then, of course, <clears throat> you know, growing up, you might come to the conclusion that your seven, eight-year-old self was wrong and whatever path they chose for you, it's not what you're going to pursue in, in your adult life. But in my case, you know, I, I, I grew up and I kept, you know, getting more and more interested in things like science and technology and and also, you know, living an international life, a multicultural life, being exposed to different languages and then flying, um, the, the, the operational life, you know, that, that you get when you're in the Air Force. So it's kind of like all of those things were interesting to me and I... I, I guess I never really wanted to have to choose between those. And so becoming an astronaut was like this perfect thing because it's the, it's, it's the you know, it's, it's a job that brings all of those things together. You know, you, you get to do all of them. And yeah, for, for me, it was just perfect. You mentioned about science fiction and about science fiction. And I, I saw one of your talks where you started off by saying, OK, this sometimes doesn't sound as exciting being an astronaut in reality as in science fiction but the thing is this does actually happen yes. this is real so when you say that i i would imagine there are audiences where sometimes that it starts off with a sense of, of oh i wanted it to be more like star trek but then there must be revelations there must be moments where as you tell them about that experience and looking back on the planet Earth, where suddenly you can see that spark ignited in them. I mean, I, I think so. Because yes, in the end, I guess reality takes on more substance than anything. That, and don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I love science fiction, and I think imagination is incredibly important. But um, you know, actually living an experience and then probably also listening to somebody who actually lift that experience uh yeah you know i i think it's it's sinks in in a deeper way um because there is that yeah that little detail that those things really happen um and so yeah sometimes i, I just try to 
to bring my audience to think, okay, if you're watching, I don't know, a docking of a space vehicle to the International Space Station, which happens, you know, either cargo vehicle or crew vehicles um, that happen several times per year. So, you know, if you're watching it live, it's painfully slow, right? You know, and, and we're used to the to science, especially movies, you know, that, that's like cinematographic rhythm. It all goes super fast and super quick. So we're used to that. So it can be really painful to watch everything happening so slowly. But I'm like, but just stop for one second and think this is happening for real above your heads. <laughs> you know, that, that's like the difference. And you were clearly delighted that you got to fly on mission too and of course I love that. I love that. Which was not even supposed to be, you know, they they, they swapped it and I'm like, no kidding, I'm on expedition 482. It's just how it doesn't get any cooler than that. <laughs> Something else that you mention a lot in your book is, um, especially at Star City, are rituals. And we know that going right back to the first flights, astronauts came up with these rituals. And I, I wondered what you thought about, do we need to invent new rituals for space? Because obviously the rituals at the moment are mostly, or at least the ones I've heard of, are mostly on Earth, you know, before launch, after launch, parties when certain things happen. Are we developing a culture of rituals in space? Is that happening yet? And how important are the rituals to the humans? There are, yeah, I, I think they're important because they give you a sense of connection, right? That you're not reinventing the wheel every time, but, you know, you're just kind of connecting to all those previous expeditions and generations of astronauts that came before you, which, I, you know, I think it's something important to, to human beings, you know, to, that they didn't just appear, but they, they <laughs> are sitting on the shoulders of giants that came before them. Um, but, yeah, there's little rituals, let me think. Well, for sure... <clears throat> You know, the, the, there's rituals like, you know, you take your crew picture when you're up there. So, you know, every crew comes up with, there's only so many ways that you can take your picture. But, um, you know, you, you, you try to make it a little bit different than everybody else's. Um, you put your mission patch stickers. You know, we, we have a place in Node 1 when we have all the stickers and then you every crew member signs them. Um, if there was a spacewalk during the expedition, then you will also put the sticker in the airlock you know, for, for future memory that uh, your crew did a spacewalk. Um, <clears throat> I love the idea of stickers because that's like kids. You know, you know, we're about the same age. And when we were kids, there were always stickers for things. You always had a sticker. And I love that that's carried on. That's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I had this cupboard in my parents' room that was full of my stickers. I don't know how much they liked them, but they let me put them there. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about, well, I wanted to ask about the, also, the, the, the process, when you start, when you know that you are one of you, it's got more possible. You're now in a room and you're looking around and all of these people, any, any one of you may be going into space. That process, I've, I spoke to a few astronauts who say the way that your mind works at each time, like, for instance, every time you have an interview and you sit there and sometimes you have a moment where you go I have a joke in my head but if I tell this joke now will that be the thing which makes them go hey and this person has a sense of humor and this fits in well or will that go that was the wrong time for a joke they're not the right person to go on the ISS I mean that how your mind the settings of your mind at moments like that must have been at kind of a, almost you know a, a peak function aren't they <laughs> 
Yes, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's the same for you know, every, kind, every kind of job interview, probably. Uh, but you you have a big investment in, in that one uh, interview in your life. Or the, well, it's not even one. I mean, it, it's, it's for the astronaut selection is a lot of those uh, um, yeah interviews with different sets of people who are going to screen you and judge you and decide whether you go to the next step or not. Uh, so, yeah, you're, you, you know, you, you're obviously... Obviously, try not to say anything wrong, um, but but on the other hand, I guess you know that this this good old advice about you know being yourself is probably the, the best the best uh, thing for you to do because I mean that there's are pretty smart people on the other side of the table and if you're trying to fake it and pretend you're somebody who you're not, uh, I'm, I'm I'm pretty sure they'll figure it out. <laughs> it sounds extraordinarily. Ju- I mean- could see it in two ways on one hand it's judgmental that every tiny thing you do is assessed everything is assessed and on the other hand they're kind of helping you explore yourself at the same time and it's this enormous privilege i guess to have all these bright people helping you work out who you are and how to be a better version of you did you did you feel judged did you like feeling judged or i mean has it did you find out things about yourself that you didn't know through all of this so, I mean, they're, they're judging you as a person during the selection because obviously they, they need to select the right people. Um, I never felt judged as a person during training, uh, not at all. I mean, the, there's, uh, you know, the, 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 on the contrary, I mean, you know, everybody's very accepting of, of the way people are. Uh, of course, they judge your performance <laughs> because, you know, you, you, you have to uh, reach a certain level of proficiency on on certain things and that can be stressful but at the same time as you're saying they're really there to help you so I, I think there's very few environments that I've encountered in my life in fact probably none <laughs> that is that supportive they have invested I think because this the system the agency has invested so much in you they really really want you to succeed so if they're, they're not going to lower the bar at all for sure for sure but they're going to do everything they can to make sure that you reach that that level and and that uh it's actually a good place to be i mean i i I really enjoy being part of this community it's interesting interesting. i know that helen sharman talked a lot about when 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 she went up she said the thing that she learned most was about when she was in Star City, the camaraderie. She said, when people say, how are you? They really do mean, how are you? And she said to her, you know, this was back in, in the early 90s. And, and she said it really it changed her view on materialism. That once she'd done that, it really did change the, that, that, that sensation of what was important. And that, that more than anything else, the bonds that she had with mm-hmm. those people that she trained with and then spent that time in space with. So the, the how are you thing is is, uh, is a typical thing that people discover when they go to, to Russia or I guess to non-Western countries that they actually, when they ask you, they actually want you to answer oh, and oh, really hear about it. I don't think, I, I, I remember discovering that when I first went to Russia and I was not an astronaut, I, I became an astronaut 10 years later, but you know, it was the same thing. I mean, they... They asked you how you are, and they were totally expecting to spend 10, 15 minutes there talking to you to figure out how you're doing. And if you tell them that you're not doing well, which you are entitled to do, uh, opposite to you know our culture where you're always supposed to <laughs> say that you're doing well, 
you know, if you tell them, well, it's going not so well, they are actually going to invest time to help you. Yeah. <laughs> but that's more a cultural thing. It's not so much astronaut versus non-astronaut. And also you, and also you, um, sorry, Helen, I don't know if you, I, know. We're, 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 I think we're slightly out. I, I apologize for that. The, um, I just want to ask you, because the book has so many interesting details that give you each part of the process. And, you know, that part of the process where there's the scenario of you finding the right spacesuit is a very <laughs> interesting thing. So can you, can you run through when that begins trying to find, because obviously that's a pretty big and important. Absolutely. So the, there's different types of spacesuits, uh, and, and mainly it's like two that you would consider right real spacesuits. One is your ascent and descent and landing suit that you're basically wearing when you take off, you know, when you launch, and then until you get to space station, and then you're not going to wear it anymore while you are on space station because you can just be in short sleeves. It's a so what NASA calls a short sleeve environment inside the space station, uh, and then you're going to wear that suit again when you when you come back for undocking, re-entry, and landing, and that's done. Uh, that's custom made for you, and and that's a suit that's not really meant to allow you to do any work. It's just basically your life insurance, it's supposed to save your life if the capsule basically loses air. We say depressurizes. So in that case, it becomes this. Uh, you know, you, you close your helmet, you got your gloves on, and, and you're connected to the oxygen supply. And that is going to keep you alive for a couple of hours, which hopefully is, is enough for you to make an emergency landing. The other space, which is the, this called EVA suit, which is the one that allows you to do spacewalks. <clears throat> and that, of course, is, 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 is like a, it's like a little autonomous spaceship that you wear on yourself. And, and, and that you can go out and it, it needs to be, uh, you know, you, you need to be able to do work in it, you know, hard work for six, seven, eight hours uh, uh, outside of the space station, repairing, doing maintenance and, and stuff. And uh, that's not custom made, that would be hugely expensive because, uh, you know, it, it's a very expensive suit. But it's like modular, it has like different bits and pieces and you can choose the size of those pieces, like you got your upper torso and your leg assembly. Uh, and then you have like extra rings that you can put in to lengthen those parts or you take them out to shorten or you have little fine adjustment points. Um, and then for people like me who are basically, basically a bit too small for the smallest <laughs> upper torso, uh, then you also start working with the suit engineers to figure out padding that you can use uh, to, to make sure that you're kind of like in a stable position inside the suit, which you will not need if you do a spacewalk on orbit, because in orbit you're floating inside the suit, so it doesn't matter. But on, on, on the ground, of course, we train underwater, which allows us to simulate being in space in the sense that you can become neutrally buoyant and you can, you know, rotate in the different directions. But guess what? You yourself, your body inside the suit is not weightless. <laughs> so, you know, if you, if you go on your back, you're going to fall on your back. If you go on your belly, you're going to fall on your belly and your shoulders and so on. And so they give you padding to try to stabilize your, your, yourself in, in there. And that can be quite a, um, a long process. So my, my first suit fit was was a full day, <laughs> pretty much. Um, and then you keep adjusting. You know, you make little changes to try to improve it uh, as you as you spend days uh, in the water. 
Um, and then there's the gloves. I mean, the, the gloves are usually also not custom made, but there is a wide range of gloves you can choose from that have kind of accumulated over the years. Um, but my my hands turned out to be weird. I don't know. So it was very difficult to find gloves that fit. So in the end, they, they ended up doing me custom made gloves. Um, took a, a whole it's year. It's a lovely bit in the book because you describe this plot that shows all the hands. And your, the little cross that is your hands is just somewhere else. Somewhere in this empty space of the graph. <laughs> You nearly had Sandra, you nearly had Sandra Magnus's hands, didn't you? That was the, the wasn't that the closest you got? You went, oh, ah, oh, no, this I can't remember. It was the length or the width. Yeah, beautiful. Um, but I think that's almost what people don't they don't realise. I, I think people would have imagined, in unless they 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 do read books like this, they they just think, oh, everyone must have their own suit made, or there's one size fits all. I think those are the two things people are kind of presumed. Right, right. Oh. Right in the book, it was important for me to have the, the details in there. And uh, because, it, it, again, this is not like, a, you know, I'm, I'm not going to teach people basic physics or anything like that. You can find that in any physics book. But all these little things that you can actually really hear from an astronaut or anyway from somebody who is from this uh, industry, let's say from this community, uh, those are the things that were really important for me to convey in the book. And how do you think all of this is in the future? Because so one of the things that struck me when the Dragon capsule took astronauts up uh, to the ISS recently was that it was so, I mean it was it was beautifully staged, but it was so clinically boring inside the capsule. You know the astronauts were there; it was clean surfaces. There were two iPads in front of them. You know it it. It looks, on one hand, you're like, well, that probably means that the technology is mature. And on the other hand, it just took all the fun out of it. <laughs> and I wonder how you feel about that. Because it feels like, because you all spend so much time with these different technologies, you practice with them, you learn the mechanisms, you can basically take them apart and put them together again. And there's a joy in that and a pride in knowing it. And then someone's going to take it all away and give you an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> Does, does that worry you? Is this a generation thing that you're you're part of the only generation of astronauts that will actually have to, you know, fiddle with the cables? Um, possibly, possibly. I mean, that, that's an evolution that happens in other, uh, um, let's say, technological areas as well. I mean, if you uh, if you sit in the cockpit of a very modern fighter, it, it kind of looks like that. You know, very slick with a multifunctional display, hardly any mechanical. Um, switches and levers anymore um, so yeah that's that's something I guess that we have to live with and I, I'm sure it will be fun you know I, I'm, I'm most likely um, you know I, I should fly to I, back to ISS in a few years and then it would be with one of those uh, newer um, vehicles and uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm sure that they're really uh, great and it will be cool but but I suddenly also enjoyed flying the Soyuz the first time, you know, this good old fashioned <laughs> uh, piece of piece of hardware with a lot of stuff that you can actually touch. Um, I, yeah, as you say, I, I personally I really enjoyed it a lot. There is a point in the book where you say space flight is a mixture of the old and the new. And I think that's one of the things that is the most fun about it, that there's these very simple ideas that have been there since the 1970s. And they work. I think it's, it's a bit where you're talking about the ATV and describing these goggles for you know, very basic goggles for checking whether it fits. And it, it is technology from, it's not space age technology, let's say that, but it is, it is space technology. 
Right, right. Because, I mean, mean, there is no consumer market for space hardware, right? So you're not going to get that optimization of the consumer product. Typically, you are not going to get that. You know, it's more like the astronauts is going to get the training they need to be able to cope with any shortcoming of the hardware because, you know, every iteration to make the hardware more comfortable, more slick or whatever, uh, it's very expensive and you have to justify that expense and, and obviously there is not a, a market, a profit to be made or anything like that. So I think that's a little bit the difference, you know, why sometimes it doesn't look as cool as maybe the latest uh, tablet or phone <laughs> or stuff like that. Now, because you've spent 199 days in space, I presume you have thought about it. thought about always asked. question that is always that asked. Journey to Mars. That journey to Mars. The psychological effects. I wonder what you think would be the biggest problems in terms of for for the humans themselves. So not for the technology, but that that time to have that time in space. Um, yeah, I, I tend to think that you're going to have to find a way to keep people busy um, because I mean, on, on, on ISS, it's true, of course, we're we're up there for for quite some time. You know, a couple of people have been there for even a whole year. Um, and I guess once you, you know, if you've been up there for a whole year, then you can also do two or, or three. I mean, eventually it doesn't make a huge difference. Uh, but we're really, really busy on ISS. I mean, there's so much to do, so much work that you can really keep yourself busy. Um, you know, even in your free time, even if they don't have work scheduled for you, they, you know, they kindly make sure to always have a, a list of tasks that you're welcome to do if you if you're bored and, and people do a lot of that on you know, in their free time on the weekends and stuff like that. Um, and, and there's also a lot of, uh, say, entertainment opportunities, you know, from calling your family to, you know, looking out and, and seeing this ever-changing uh, spectacle of, uh, of the earth beneath you. Um, it, those are all things that you're not going to have on a, on a vehicle flying to Mars, you know, that I think it's going to have to be uh, a pretty reduce size, reduce capabilities. Uh, it's going to be focused more on reliability than on a lot of functions, you know, to make sure that you actually, it actually gets you there. So I don't think that there's going to be a whole lot to do for for, for people on board. Um, so really yeah, there's, there's an interesting comparison, I think, with early ships, because what happened on board ships was that there's this whole load of craft. So when they were at sea, you know, they'd done all the tasks. There's there's an entire um, sort of culture of ship art and craft yeah. and people taking things from the ship. And I wonder if there's about to be a whole new, you know, astronaut art thing, because that's what they could do. That's what they did to while away the time. And it used their creativity. Um, and And maybe that's coming up. So I guess on the ISS, you didn't have time to... Well, people have painted a little bit and done photography, but not really to knit or sew or... Yeah, a couple of people have, but not, not many. Yeah, that, that's very interesting what you're saying, yeah. But, but in terms of it being dramatic, I mean, I, I know a lot of people always wonder how it's going to be to fly so far from Earth or, you know... But but on the other hand, as you, as you were saying, I mean, think, let's think about people sailing off in the 13, 14, 1500s, right? You know, those ships... Like, probably knowing a lot less about what they were going to find and end up and the weather and the dangers and the destination than we do about space and Mars uh, nowadays. So I don't, I, I tend to not 
worry about it too much. I mean, I think, I tend to think that people will be fine. And you, by the way, Helen, you, by the way, Helen, that's terrible advice, knitting and sewing on the ISS. That's a health and safety nightmare. Needles <laughs> fly. And try threading a needle in that kind of gravity. Uh, you, there's, there's reasons. Um, we're going uh, to have a, a musical break now with someone who I found out, uh, I hadn't realised how many times her work has gone up into space. Uh, it was uh, Helen Sharman took two of her songs up to space and we were just talking now and found out that uh, also Samantha took... Uh, the work and the first song of hers that we're going to hear is uh is the song that both of you took up into space and you are not the only people have this it's a very popular astronauts so uh please welcome oh, i should also mention by the way if you do have any questions uh do send them in uh we're going to be doing some questions after this but someone who uh i absolutely adore the music of and i'm very very pleased that we have her here tonight uh please welcome whichever way you wish to whoop and cheer in your own home attic wherever you may be Tanita Tickerum. Everyone has said that I might go Cause my red suitcase and my red bands were quite so I'll get a heavy wind of rain that falls I'll never come back again you know how I laugh when winter shows a hand That picture frame is the saddest thing you'll see But it bore me time and a place that love could be Since I'm going now, please rearrange I'd like to think I don't believe you'll be open anymore So tell me if you want to see A world outside your window A world outside your window isn't free Oh, and tell me if you want to catch The feeling of redemption Yeah. Okay. 
Sleepless 
Welcome back. And uh, you may now again whoop and cheer in your lofts, in your cellars, wherever you may be, uh, for those two beautiful songs by Tanita Tikram. And uh, as we've said, they've, we're, we're going to talk to her in a moment about the fact that uh, she keeps uh, just okay. astronaut after astronaut. <laughs> She's just being taken into space the whole day. Eventually, I think there's enough stamps on the card, and you're allowed to go into space too, Tanita. You do a live setup there. They take you to Star City. Uh, you don't have to do all the really emergency kind of training, just the basic training. And you go up there and you do a set. It it it, it can happen. Um, and. <laughs> And just quickly to remind you, uh, if you uh, the, this we're doing this, this is one of the, the, the penultimate event, in fact, of the uh, Albert Hall uh, home events. And uh, if you are able to give any donations, the Albert Hall, of course, like all the venues around uh, the UK, um, a lot of them, are, it's, it's very, very hard because there are no shows going on. And if you think, hey, do you know what? I've had fun and you can pop something in uh, in their donations. That's great. And if you would like to support Book Shambles or Cosmic Shambles on Patreon, that is fantastic as well, because we're still trying to make three or four uh shows a week and of course also josie and i and all the the rest of the people who do these uh we don't have any gigs either we emptied our diary some time ago um so i'm now going to introduce uh, uh the uh, I, we now have added two more guests uh we have my normal cohort uh, uh and, 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 and partner, partner in tangential, in tangential uh, rambling, uh, rambling, rambling josie, josie, Long. Long. Hello, hello, josie. Hello, josie. hello josie hello We've been talking about space, space, but you've been to a gravel for a day day out. Yeah, Yeah, I did, did, and uh, it was... Oh, well, now, I'll tell you this. We were swimming in the water, me and my friend, and neither of us had touched any water, any cold water for so long, um, that it was very, very emotional for us both. Then as we were in the water, it started to rain suddenly and so heavily that we could barely see each other and we couldn't see around us. We could just see the rain and see it sort of hitting the surface of the water and then this mist coming up. And it was maybe lasted five minutes and it was so like, it was such an experience. I'll tell you that for free. It was a thing. Uh, Yeah. So it was a good, good day. And then we walked around in the sunshine afterwards, like it had never happened. The, the gravel, water, water sunshine, sunshine. That's, that's the makings of a day, isn't it? That's all you need. Sometimes yeah. just the gravel. It just depends on your mood. <laughs> um, Tanita, it's great to have, have you here. And as we were just saying, you, this is, does it change the song? <laughs> I Can I just say, I do not know that Samantha also took me into space. I'm absolutely <laughs> overwhelmed. I, I think twice is kind of, that's kind of cool, isn't it? I don't, I don't, you know. Twice that you know of. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think it's more more than twice actually because I think there's someone else that I've spoken so I I think you've but that's an interest because we were just talking kind of while we were were, were off air about that moment where you see all of these lovely connections all of these tributaries between the grand endeavor of going into space but then also artistic creation and 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 the importance of that you know quite a few astronauts have talked about the amount of time they spend thinking about what are the pieces of literature they're going to take what other pieces of music going to take that and you know again rusty schweikart who i mentioned before he chose very specific passages from books because he felt he wanted to take what he said humanity into space he wanted to take some of the art into space so you know tanita how how do you feel to be part of that process and does that in some way change those uh, well, I, I, it is overwhelming because when I think of the qualities that it takes to be an astronaut and to, it, it's, you have to have 
so many incredible abilities. You have to be intellectually a genius. You have to have um, the psych psychological strength, mental strength, and then you have to have the physical strength. I have none of these qualities. So to, to have my song in space, I don't feel very, I feel totally like, whoa, how did that happen? So, so, so that gives me a little bit of hope that maybe there's something also very human because maybe the songs are very human. So when I think of astronauts, I think of, of those people and people in, involved in science and physics and all these things as totally superhuman. I really, I really do. I, I don't have that brain. When, when I was watching uh, last night some of Samantha's videos about being in space and she was talking about mass and volume and about gravity and I just looked at my partner and I said, it's like she's talking Chinese. Can you understand what she's talking about? But it's so wondrous. And yes, to be part of that in some small way is, is overwhelming. And I, and I think you can talk. You, 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 you're learning Chinese, aren't you, Samantha? I'm sure someone told me because you, you're quite a linguist, aren't you? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm learning Chinese. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a tough one, but I'm, I'm making progress. Is that just a side project or is that, <laughs> is that is purpose behind it? Is it just that you've done, all, the, you've done all, the, all the learning how to be an astronaut? You've done all the hard stuff, so you need the next hard task. So that's become yeah. Chinese now. Um, I mean, it, it's something I've, I've been interested in for a long time, but actually uh, it has also been part of my job. As, you know, the, the agency has supported me in, in learning Chinese because we, um, we, we've had a, you know, a, a, a budding cooperation with, uh, with China that uh, you know, we, we are trying to slowly build up and, and pursue. And, and of course, Chinese is not something that you learn from one day to, to, another, to the other. So there's a couple of us who have been uh, working on it for a few years now. <laughs> I feel like there's something very funny about the idea of funny about the idea of astronauts on a space station being really eager to practice their languages on each other. <laughs> like, oh no, oh no, they're going to want to practice their Chinese on me, and all, all I want is to sit and have my space sandwich. I'm serious. <laughs> I've heard the lovely thing is that quite early on in, and I don't know if this is true for you, Samantha, which is in training sometimes that moment where you decide to see if you can joke in another language that oh, you may well be able to yes. communicate language, but actually, and, I, and I've heard lots of us always go, turns out it was a lot harder to do jokes in Russian than I thought. You, know, you had a lot of camaraderie, <laughs> but actually the translation of a punchline is tricky. <laughs> no, it is, it is. Actually, in, in the last time I was in China to um, some students at three universities and I had, a, you know, two, three jokes, punchlines in, in my talk. And, you know, every time that I was, you know, saying those out loud, you know, I was like really waiting for the moment. Are they, they going to get the joke or not? <laughs> and they did. So um, I had um, learned it well. <laughs> I think that does show that does show that shows a real command of a language when you can go that to, to that kind of depth now i have to ask because we've been talking about the number 42 and in the book you you quote that that moment the the revelation in hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where we find out the meaning of life the universe and everything so how much has having been in space having had that window to look out on on the planet did you return feeling a a sense of change is it something that has kind of perhaps approached you over time? Think about it, or were you so well prepared already that you you think, well, I think I'm roughly the same person I was when I went up. Well, that is a hard question. I I think that 
you're, you're probably roughly the same person. I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I didn't have the feeling that it dramatically changed me, but I think it made me grow in in some ways. I mean, it, it was an opportunity for me to shed some childish aspects of my personality. Um, you know, those that have a lot to do with your ego or with your fears about what other people think about you. And I don't know if it's that much related to, and, and also judgment, you know, judgment of other people. I, I think I'm much more able to let go of, of all that than I was before. It might also simply be that I'm getting older, and that kind of tends to happen as you grow older. Um, but also it might be that actually having that experience of, uh, of, of, I don't know, having this great fortune of, of, of experiencing something that is so unique, feeling that incredible privilege of being up there, realizing that it's just you and your five crewmates orbiting around the Earth, literally embracing it every hour and a half, you know, every time you fly in orbit around the planet and, and every other human being is, is down there feeling also that sense of connection that inevitably comes, right? And which is really funny. I mean, you're actually far off the earth, but in a way you feel more connected to it than when you're on the planet. Um, just because your perspective when you're on the planet is, is a little bit limited to your little box in which you live. And, and from out there, you just feel that, that sense of connection. So I, I think all of that doesn't dramatically change you, but I think it helps you maybe to make, you know, a spur of growth. <laughs> and how do you feel? So one thing that's very noticeable is that if you, if I, so I've been in a few, I, situa- so I've been in a few situations where there's been a group of astronauts. So for example, um, Tim Peake was a big, when he went, uh, when he flew, I think the year after you, it was a big deal when he took off and when he came back. And one of those events, there was a group of astronauts from uh, a lot of different generations. So Leonov was there and uh, Andreas Morgensen, who was one of your colleagues, you know, there's a set of people and Helen Sharman. And it was really interesting that they were you're all brilliant you're very friendly you talk to everyone it was all great and then they saw each other and it was different and they I don't know whether you're aware of this but from the outside it very look it looks as though these are the people who understand like I don't know if it's just the training you've been through but you I and I watched and the the time it was most dramatic because I watched Helen Sharman walk into this room and you could almost hear the click like this is one of us and we can teach sport talk a different language are, are you aware of that at all or maybe you're just so immersed in that world that you don't see it um i think i mean I, I i don't know that i see it but i can imagine that it would look like that and i think it's because and that's that's a that, that's the part that i don't find so nice about being an astronaut it's that sometimes it creates a little bit of a wall towards other people uh, because of that, which I find excessive admiration and curiosity that, that people have, because we're by no means, you know, this, this incredibly stellar people that people think we are, right? Um, and that sometimes I think it, it creates a difficulty in having a normal human relationship because people just are just curious about you, but in a way which is a little bit, yeah, not, not really normal, not natural. And so probably what you see is like, you know, when you're in that kind of situation and then it's just colleagues coming. Well, with colleagues, it all becomes just normal and natural. And it's just, you know, it's just another astronaut, right? 
do you think i wonder that I, w- I was reading someone recently who was talking about about when that idea of astronauts and the right stuff that whole kind of tom wolf thing and that it created an image which was to some extent unhelpful because it, it created this image which was a very kind of this this it's a macho top gun kind of guy mm. and also that it meant that there was an idea sometimes in popular culture that astronauts weren't the kind of people who would at times you know that that, that level of viewing things viewing the beauty viewing I, I mean i know the stories of various apollo astronauts who would have a moment of suddenly talking about the beauty and then suddenly snap out of it it was like <laughs> hang on a minute i'm now not being you know the the the, the pilot do you do you think this is changing in, in in a positive way that kind of view of what an astronaut is well i mean i i think it's a very entrenched myth i mean it has sedimented over over decades um you know, and, and if you if you read if you read actually accounts from from that time, I mean, I, one author, uh, I think she's quite known in the English speaking world as well, Oriana Fallaci. She's an, an Italian writer, um, and one of the early works that that she did was in the sixties, was reporting from the United States um, about you know she, she went there with the purpose of writing a book and that was before the the actual Apollo moon landings it was in the 60s all the preparation she met the astronauts and and I love that book it's uh, it's called uh, if if uh, if if the sun dies and because she she meets those astronauts and she's very disenchanted I mean she she has no pity in criticizing all the things that she doesn't like about them. I mean, in the end, she ends up liking a lot of them and becoming friends, but it's a process, right? At the beginning, she has a very bad image of them, and she's completely unaffected by all this hero uh, mythology that we have been exposed to for decades. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's incredibly refreshing to, <laughs> to, to read that, I, I think. Um, yeah, so maybe we have to go back and, and rediscover also those sources and not just the, all those very famous sources like you were mentioning, the right stuff that have really sedimented the mythology to, to rediscover a little bit more the, the reality of things. So when we were just well um, before all this started, before all this started, you were, you were having a chat. You were talking about your the project you've been working on, uh, Gateway, which is another type of spacecraft, and you were saying that part of your job is to bring the user experience to it. So on the spacecraft of the future, what are the things that bug you most? What are the things that like, someone needs to fix this? Someone needs to sort this out on the next spacecraft. What what are the things that need fixing? <clears throat> So compared to space, well, <laughs> that's of course an interesting uh, an interesting question because there is two aspects uh, to it, right? I mean, the the on, on the one hand we have an opportunity to design a new vehicle and so to bring in all the lessons learned in on all the things that we've learned from space station. On the other hand, there is a catch, of course, which is we are designing a much smaller vehicle. And uh, maybe for the people who are listening, you know, we, I think we were talking backstage about Gateway, you know, this next uh, outpost uh, of, of humans out there in space, which is going to be much further out, a thousand times further away than the International Space Station orbiting around the moon. 
So, on, you know, the, on the one hand, you have all these great ideas about, you know, we have to fix this and this and this and this and that. Uh, and on the other hand, you, you're going to have to uh, deal with the constraints of having to fit everything in a much smaller vehicle than uh, than space station. But that said, again, you know, it's an opportunity to, to design a new vehicle so you can take into consideration things like, um, you know, um, you don't want to put noisy things near uh, where you sleep, for example, or you don't want to put uh, dirt producing activities or functions close to where you eat. Uh, you don't want the toilet close to where you eat. You know, so all, all those considerations that, uh, you know, if it, it, it's better if you if you try to design that way from the beginning instead of having it be an afterthought and trying to fix things afterwards. Although, of course, Benita's music is an exception to all of the uh, rules about, the, uh, rules about <laughs> noise. Tanita, <laughs> 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 we've got a... Times further out. Huh? Sorry, Jenny. It's going to be a thousand times further out. Right, right, because the space station is only kilometres, uh, so it's really, really close to, to Earth. You know, it's orbiting really fast, very close to, to the planet. And uh, the gateway is going to be orbiting around the moon. And the moon, of course, is almost 400,000 kilometers away from, from Earth. So, wow. Yeah. I, can, I, I'm not sure anyone's asked you yet, but I'd love to know what, to you, know. Like, what you like to read for pleasure and whether you re re have read for pleasure in space and what you, what you do like. So I, I read a lot. It, it probably in space is the place where I've read the, the least. <laughs> I, I, did bring, I did bring a lot of books uh, and a few also as um, hard copies, as, um, as objects, let's say. Um, but I, I wasn't sure whether I was going to actually read or not. And in the end, I did not. And I think it was because I, I didn't have a whole lot of free time and I wanted to use the free time I had to do the things that, you know, I, I, I was not going to be able to do when I when I was back on Earth. So, you know, everything that has to do with, you know, the, the view that you get from up there, you know, taking pictures and videos and all of that. So that kind of took away uh, most of my free time. Well, that uh, makes sense because even when I'm on a train, if I'm looking at my phone, I'm, if I'm looking at my phone, I'm like, what are you doing? You're ignoring the scenery. And that's just a train. You know yeah, I mean? you don't, we, don't, we don't have the phone up there. So <laughs> <it's> the <advantage>. yeah. <laughs> that's very good. It's great. <laughs> Actually, it cured my addiction to my, to my phone <laughs> being in space. That was great. <laughs> so it must have felt very odd once you came back picking up a phone and being like, what is this silly little thing? Why am I touching this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, you know, I, I obviously uh, use it on a regular basis, but I'm not, yeah, I'd, I'd yeah. say I'm not addicted to it like I was before. So it, it cured me, cured me. Now, we've got some questions that have come in. We've got one for, uh, for you, Tanita, which is, uh, if you could do a gig on a Virgin Galactic flight or similar... <laughs> Uh, so you could play in space. Would you do it? Now, I think Virgin Galactic, we were just saying, that's a very short time actually being in space, so you might have to do a Napalm Death cover. But oh, would, you, uh, um, uh, would you like do to that? do that? Um, yeah, I'd, I would, but I'm too scared. I'm really scared of heights. So I'd probably <laughs> be the wrong person to go into space. But um, I, I, yeah, why not? But the few, the, 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 honestly, I, I am so not an astronaut. I'm very honoured. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't think that 
being scared of heights is really a problem because I think that's related to the fear of falling, right? Like falling down. Yeah. Yes. But you can't you can't fall in space and you will know that because you're floating. There is it doesn't give you a fear of falling anywhere. So you might be just Oh wow. Then I would totally do the gig. Yeah. (laughs) I would yeah, I would love to. I dream when I'm in bed and I can't sleep, I do dream I'm in space. That's the most comforting thing I can think of. Mm. And it does make me feel, you know, that I'm one, you know, that there's something comforting about thinking you're one with the universe. So I am a bit, but not, no, I don't have the human qualities to be in space. No. That's why That's I like, what I like. We've got the perfect balance for this podcast. It's like <laughs> matter and antimatter, astronaut and anti-astronaut. We've got the most anti-astronaut possible to keep the balance of it of it going. Hopefully not, otherwise we'll annihilate each other. <laughs> so that's why we have to do this. We're not do, we're not keeping you apart because of the pandemic. We're keeping you apart because of the laws of physics. So you know, not the laws of biology. There is. I was, I was just going to say that, you know, you talked about in the book about the first time that you get that that chance to float, that first time. Uh, and that is, and I presume, Tanita, that's kind of what you're saying, that sense of losing, you know, if you want to say, you know, the, the, the burden of Earth gravity, you know, that, that there is something. When I watch those clips of you, when I watch, you know, floating near, the, you know, showing the food and showing that kind of, there is something which just feels very, you know, elegiac, really. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a sense of of freedom, of effortlessness, of, you know, as, yeah, as, as you were rightly saying, you're freeing yourself of this burden of your weight and the weight of things. Um, it's, it's very, very pleasant. It, it has even a, I don't know, maybe a childish component to it, you know, it's like playing. <laughs> um, and, and it has that, especially when you experience it for the first time, it, have, it has that... Uh, that pretty unique experience of, you know, that, that you don't really get in your adult life of, of, of learning how to move your body and engaging with the environment around you, you know, with the three-dimensional space around you in a completely new way. It's like, you know, it's like a child learning to crawl and then walk and, and all of a sudden here you are, you're an adult and you're learning all over how to move in space and, you know, how to, to move your body. Um, but it has a grace to it because it's effortless. So it, you know, it's like, I don't know, it's like watching or not watching, but being, I don't know, Cirque du Soleil or something like that, <laughs> which, which I, you know, I, I always loved watching because they, they have this grace and this lightness. It's like they're flying and all of a sudden without any special training or ability as a you know acrobat all of a sudden you can do that so it's very very pleasant all all you have to do the shortcut to being an acrobat (laughs) is just become an astronaut very easy yeah there you go hard work (laughs) easy Do you ever have that when you come back that just for a moment you think maybe maybe if I think hard enough again that's almost like the the moment in Douglas Adams's book where you know the 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 trick to flying is to throw yourself at the ground and miss but that that <laughs> Which idea is exactly what we do on space station <laughs> <laughs> But I've do, do you sometimes get moments where you just you do feel you feel burdensome you become so aware of 
of your of yourself and the and the, the the weight of yourself on earth and you think oh just for a moment just this morning can i wake up and just float a little out of bed can i just return yeah <laughs> i know i know yeah sometimes i dream of it i think we all have those dreams of like uh, you know like floating um i used to have them a lot when i was younger and actually less and less unfortunately <laughs> but yeah no in reality i use proxies like i can i can try to reimagine myself on the ISS, like pushing off a handrail and reimagining what, you know, what my body would do in space. But it's really a proxy. I cannot, I'm not able, maybe some other people are, but I'm not able to really recreate it, refeel it in my mind and especially not in my body. But when I was in space, it was the same thing the other way around. So I, after a while, I couldn't really, you know, feel in my body anymore how it felt to walk. You know, to, to actually feel, you know, a, a step, you know, rolling with your feet, feeling the the floor uh, reacting, uh, the, the, all of that, it was gone. I couldn't, you know, for me, it was just normal to float. <laughs> what's the period of adjustment like when you come back into, uh, back onto Earth? Like, how long does it take to feel like you're not seasick or, I mean, is it a seasickness? Like... <laughs> What's yeah, yeah, yeah. A bit, bit, your, your vestibular system, so your balance is off, is your, so you're a bit disoriented. Uh, subjectively, I felt, so I came back on a Thursday, and I think it was a Monday when I did the first, uh, let's say, objective test of my vestibular system, which is like this vibrating platform, and they tell you to do different things, like, you know, look up, close your eyes, um, and, and stay on your toes, and all of those things, and then basically watch how long it takes you to fall. And um, and so, again, I'd come back on Thursday, a Monday, I'm taking this test. And if you had asked me subjectively, I felt just fine. Oh, I'm back to normal. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I did the platform test and I was so far from normal. <laughs> I mean, they're like, yeah, you probably shouldn't drive yet. <laughs> like, okay. um, and then I did the test a week later. So that was 10 days after landing. And then I was back to normal. In fact, some on some tests, even better than than before flight. Uh, so somewhere between those four and those 11 days, my vestibular system readjusted. Uh, but then you you also have to uh, get your cardiovascular system has to kind of get trained up again, you know, you know, your heart needs to pump against gravity, your, your veins need to be able to do that, you know, contraction movement that um, helps bring the blood back to the heart. Um, at the beginning, you have this really elevated pulse all, all the time. So you sleep a lot. You sleep like a baby, like 12 hours a night for the first few days. <laughs> you know, everything is really tiring. Um, you get blisters on your feet from walking, even if you don't walk much. Just, you know, because in space, you get this baby feet, right? You lose all your calluses, so your dead skin goes away because you don't walk. <laughs> and then, of course, you pay for it when you come back. Um, Gosh, it's so funny to think that calluses. Yeah, you can really, really baby, baby fit. (laughs) Now, unfortunately, we've we've run out of time. So, um, I just want to find out a few. First of all, I should mention, of course, again, that Samantha's uh, book, Diary of an Apprentice Astronaut, uh, is out next week. In fact, next Thursday. So, uh, and it's really great. As I said, I I I read it at the beginning this week. So it's it's a very it will give you so much information about what it is to be an astronaut. And it also, as I mentioned before, your literary references. You have a. Uh, the the Calvino story from uh, Cosmic Comics, where they put a ladder up to the moon to collect the kind of the, the 
Oh man, that's such a, a a beautiful story and such a beautiful thing to quote in your book as well. Yeah, I love that story. Um, Tanita, what are you? Uh, is there any way that people? Because because I know you've been doing some stuff online. Are you still uh, putting stuff up? Are you still doing some, some, some online? Yeah, I'm going to take a little break, but I'll be back in September with. I just do Sunday songs, and um, yeah, hopefully by next year we'll be able to play live again and start to go in the studio at the moment i think everyone's pretty much on hold musically and comedy all, all the arts so um yeah but do come and listen to music every sunday i i, I bang out a tune so <laughs> be back in september thank you, thank you. Well, I've got, well, some, I've got worrying some worrying news for you. That was unfortunately because I mentioned you doing a Napalm Death cover. <laughs> apparently, now in the chat, there are a lot of people very, very keen on that Napalm Death cover. And well, so, I may well uh, do that next month. So. <laughs> they're good. They go. I mean, it'll be interesting because their lyrics are they're, they're quite intense. The lyrics. It's just you never really hear them uh, because of their, their nature of. Uh, but they are a very interesting man. Josie, are we going to see you next week? Are we doing a book shambles? Will be more stuff of that i hope we're going to meet up yes i think so and other than that i am hoping to start doing some silly twitch streams about um called uh the world offline with josie long where i talk about a different offline thing uh each week but other i've not been doing much recently <laughs> so i'm going to try and do more Brilliant. And, uh, and and Helen, and Helen, we're, we're not doing a Sunday Science Q&A this Sunday because no. this is replacing that. We're taking a, a, a Sunday off, but we will be back, I think, the Sunday after. Yeah, yeah. And I'm doing lots of, if people are into that kind of thing, I'm doing lots of things with Royal Museums Greenwich at the moment. So we have a webcast every week talking to curators, which is how I know about the amazing things that crafts people did on ships and oh. making amazing model ships out of sheep bones in the 18th century. And so if anyone is interested in mixtures of science and culture and history, do go and look for ships seeing the stars from Royal Museums Greenwich I'm doing that every week and it is fascinating there's so many things in there so even if you can't go to the museum you can listen to us online that's fantastic thank you very much to everyone for uh joining us and as i said remember if you can support the royal albert hall that's it's a weird thing to say something like that, but it really is true as well if you if you can and if you are able to support us via uh patreon cosmic shambles all book shambles uh have a lovely weekend and uh samantha as i said it, thank you so much for joining us uh we can we do I, i've got the the 40 questions that i wrote that we haven't done can we do that time uh before you go back in space when you're in space you know absolutely <laughs> Just ring me up on Skype. <laughs> Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Good night, Thanks very much for listening. Rate and review five stars on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. Support us on Patreon if you can, patreon.com slash bookshambles. Donate to the crowdfunder for the charities for the 24-hour edition of Nine Lessons and Carols for Socially Distanced People. Robin Ince, Josie Long, Helen Chesky, Brian Cox, Chris Hadfield, Samantha Christopheretti, Helen Sharman, Sophie Ellis, Baxter, Nitin Sawney. Tanita, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. There's going to be about 150 guests. We're going to run over. It's 24 hours and we're still going to run over. So go and investigate that. Cosmicshambles.com slash nine lessons. Have a great week. Stay safe. Look after yourself and back soon. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.